And I'm Aaron Gullius, and you're listening to Great Lakes Lore. Samantha, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Not bad. Um, are you ready for this episode's topic? Are you ready for this? Um, ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> yeah. I'm interested. It's an interesting story, but I'll be happy when we're done with it. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah. Today, we are talking about the Circleville Letters. And Sam, how did we find this? I literally Googled mysteries in Ohio <laughs> because as, as a Michigander, Ohio is Ohio. So I don't really know any mysteries or legends from Ohio. And I thought this one sounded quite interesting. I had never heard of it before. So I pitched it to you and. And you like, I had never right. heard of it either. Um, it, it's, if we had heard of it, I don't know that we would have covered it. You know, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> you know as as we got into it, um, at least I thought it was it was interesting. It was very interesting. Yeah, it, it's got a whole bunch of interesting primary sources to <laughs> it, which um, you don't have with some of the other topics we've covered. Some of the other mm-hmm. crime like topics we've covered, mm-hmm. and it had sort of a, a significant media footprint in the national media, which I thought was interesting because we can sort of compare our take on what we've learned to unsolved mysteries or 48 hours or things like Mm -hmm. that. And, you know, I was surprised after reading about it that I hadn't heard of it. (laughs) Like it was, I, I, I'm just, I'm shocked that I had not come across it. None of my friends or family really know about it, but there are many other people in our Twitter sphere and those kinds of things right. who are like, oh yeah, I know about that. So, um, so weird. <laughs> I'm not surprised I didn't know about it because it's sort of a true crimey thing and, and that's not really, not really my scene. But if you're not aware out there of what this is, this is a story about death. It's a story about the male. It's a story <laughs> about possibly corrupt claims of corrupt law enforcement. It's a story of justice denied and or justice served, depending on your perspective. <laughs> and it's a story of me and Sam plowing through a lot of information <laughs> to try to put together a coherent story that was maybe a little bit different than versions of the story you may have heard. Yeah. And and try really hard to bring an interesting take to it because as we researched, it's been covered by so many different things from television shows to podcasts, blogs, you know, whatever. Um, we wanted to make sure that we were doing something that hadn't been done. So hopefully at the end, we have some analyses and a few points that we're going to make that that won't just be, you know, another sort of regurgitation, I guess, of, of the main right. points of the story. But if you're not familiar with the story, we're going to give you enough of it so yes. you you get what's going on without mm-hmm. inundating you with <laughs> courtroom transcripts and the law and And hopefully the whole story, like too. Yeah, the whole <laughs> as story. As much of yeah. the whole story as anybody knows, which that'll yeah. make sense when you hear some points we make later. <laughs> Let's start with the story, and then we'll get into how it sort of blossoms into a massive, massive thing. So it's March of 1977. And I'm one year and one third years old. And a few (laughs) hours away from where I am, a mysterious figure 
begins sending sinister letters to a number of people in Circleville, Ohio, sort of south of Columbus, about an hour and a half from Point Pleasant, West Virginia, if you're a Mothman fan. (laughs) The main target for a lot of this was Mary Gillespie, a local school bus driver. Nearly every telling of the story we've seen begins more or less with Mary receiving a letter. But the first letter, which was postmarked on March 2nd, was mailed to Westfall High School for Gordon Massey. Massey was born in 1932 and became the principal at Westfall in 64. In 1972, he became the district superintendent. Now, there's a lot of letters in this episode, and we're not going to recite them all, obviously, but this first letter sets the tone for what's to come. Dear Sir, According to my girlfriend, you have asked her to go out many times and have asked the other female bus drivers too. Due to your position and their jobs with you, you should not do this. This must stop at once for the good of the school and families. If they are not stopped, I will be forced to write to the school board and I would hate to do that. To prey on another man's girl is untouchable, especially when they are out trying to make a living. There is also talk of you dating a married woman and taking advantage of them. Do you need time and names again? Please think. I suggest you find yourself a pimple-faced whore and start up with her and leave my girls alone. So the handwriting is very interesting in the letters, which obviously doesn't come across in a podcast, (laughs) but we'll share some different (laughs) images in our social medias. Um, And when you look at it, it's very blocky and very suggestive of somebody who was deliberately trying to disguise their usual handwriting. The letters also have very poor grammar, if you picked up on that from that that letter I read. And um, there's a lot of spelling errors. So, I mean, a lot of, you know, partial sentences, run-on sentences. I don't know if it really falls under poor grammar or poor spelling, but there's a lot of syntax and word choice that is Mm-hmm. That is strange. Um, mm-hmm. The one that jumped off the page at me was to prey on another man's girl is untouchable. Yes, that's a weird one. <laughs> so the second letter then was addressed to the Westfall Board of Education, accusing Massey of sexually propositioning and harassing female bus drivers in the district. And also postmarked the fourth is another letter to Massey alleging improprieties against bus drivers. So these letters don't stop. And later in the month, the vice principal of Westfall High School received a letter. Dear school, talk to Gordon Massey about his affairs. I shall warn you, I know the truth. I want to protect your school. It has a good reputation. You should keep it like that. I shall send you proof about driver number 62917. She has a child in the school there now. I shall prove this shortly. I expect him then to be discharged. You'll see that I am telling the truth. Ominous. (laughs) (laughs) It is ominous. It's very scary. And the next day, the vice principal received another letter naming Mary Gillespie as the woman that Massey had been dating um, and said there was another woman and that there would be proof of that soon as well. So the letter writer sends another missive, also postmarked March 18th, 1977, to Ronald Gillespie, the husband of bus driver Mary. The letter informs him that Mary is having an affair with Massey, but that she's being used. Massey, the letter says, will never leave his wife. The letter then ends with these chilling sentences. You should catch them together and kill them both. Just follow her and she'll lead you right to him. He doesn't deserve to live. Now that's that's grim. It's Th- that is it is. It, he doesn't deserve to live. You should you should kill them. You yeah. should you should kill them. Yeah. 
around the same time, Mary received a letter as well. Now, most tellings have her receiving a letter before her husband, Ronald, but the collections of letters that I've found online don't include a letter to Mary that predates the first one to her husband. The earliest available letter to Mary is brief. Stay away from Massey. Don't lie when questioned about meeting him. I know where you live. I've been observing your house and know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it seriously. Everyone concerned has been notified. And everything will be over soon. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. Everything <laughs> will be over soon. That is, man, it's creepy. Can you imagine Super getting creepy. a letter like this? No. <laughs> it, it would it would freak me out. Now, I, I will say that when I was in high school, my mother received some letters, not oh. like this, but, but some unpleasant letters from huh. an unpleasant person. And it was creepy. It, it, it bothered her. It was mm-hmm. very, very creepy, very strange. And, you know, I think, I mean, we don't see this happening, I mean, at least that we know of, that much anymore because people can just take their aggressions out on each other online. You can get into arguments with your neighbors on Facebook, you know, all... <laughs> Everything oh, is yeah. just out there. Like, first, I mean, nobody uses the mail really much at all anymore. And so all this communication is online. And I, I had thought about this several times throughout. But then when you said that too, it just, I mean, it really drives home the fact that people can just be meet online because they can hide behind their computer, which we all right. know already. And, and with and with their real name, you know, yeah. a, a lot of times. Yeah, so no one's afraid on, on some- <laughs> Right. Something like Facebook. I mean, it's not like the old anonymous message board flame wars. This is, I live three doors down from you and I am saying horrible things to you Mm -hmm. on the whatever township uncensored Facebook group (laughs) or whatever. Um, So it it really is um, a different world Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And I'm not saying we should bring back anonymous (laughs) threatening letters in the mail. Do not do that. I'm, I'm just saying we've got there's different ways people are being horrible to each other. I was listening to this podcast and they said I should <laughs> send these some poison letters. pen letters seem like the uh, the the new thing. Yeah. Oh gosh. Um suddenly we're accessories to some sort of felony. Okay. So there's a bunch of other letters uh, throughout 1977 and we're not going to go through all of these. But Sam, were there any any bits of letters that you thought were particularly bad or interesting or bad in a fun way it's to both ron and mary but calling them each a pig (laughs) there's just a lot of this pig word being thrown back and forth so let's let's read a couple of these i guess because okay so postmarked april 6th and this is to mary lady this is your last chance to report him i know you are a pig and will prove it and shame you out of ohio a pig sneaks around and meets other women's husbands behind their backs only, causes families, homes, and marriages to suffer. You are such a pig, and I will prove it. How's your little girl? Will she grow up to be just like you? That last sentence. Oh, that's bad. The moment that the child was brought into it, that's when it yeah. became weird. And certain people who you might have suspected was the one, it's kind of like, well, but would they really do that? <laughs> yeah, this is somebody who who doesn't just know and dislike Mary, uh, somebody who has knowledge of the whole family. Mm-hmm. Now, on the, the sort of pig motif, yeah. Uh, about a week after that one you read uh, to Ron, you are a pig defender. You are also a pig. Make her admit the truth and inform the school board. Good hunting in your red and white truck on the way to work. That's really mm-hmm. threatening. It's like, I know what you drive. 
There's, there's another one that I, I found really interesting. Why destroy your family in the school? Admit the truth. He has had more affairs than yours. However, yours is the most recent and I must thrive on it. Yeah. It's just expressing this, this thrill. And the thing that I wanted to point out with the with the pig stuff, though, is like that seems like a very uh, misogynistic thing, calling the woman the pig, you know, and sort of going after her for having the affair. I always associate it with sort of a, a male dominance kind of thing and and debasing the woman. Right. You know, she's not a human. She's a pig. So um, it stands out as something that seems like would be coming from a man. So as these letters are being sent out in the spring and summer of 1977, someone, probably the letter writer, it's assumed, is also placing crudely lettered signs around town saying some pretty reprehensible things about Mary Gillespie, about Gordon Massey, and about Mary and Ron's daughter. It's a troubling situation, and Ronald Gillespie is getting tired of it. He actually was spending a lot of time um, going out and removing these signs early in the morning because they'd be placed along the bus route and things. And so between the letters and this extra work he's doing to protect his wife and daughter, the stress level is high for, for Ron Gillespie. And then on August 19th, 1977, it's in the evening, he receives a phone call, presumably from the person sending the letters. It's reported that he kisses his daughter goodbye and heads out in that red and white truck that was mentioned in the the one letter that we read. So as he's driving, um, he misses a curve and goes off the road. He ends up crashing his truck and dying. He's declared dead on arrival at the hospital. And according to the police report, report. Um, this is how they describe the crash. He was going, he was northwest bound on Five Points Pike and failed to negotiate a curve, going off the left side of the roadway and striking a tree. He traveled 37 feet before leaving the roadway, 36 feet after leaving the roadway, and seven feet after impact with the tree. The report also states that there was a 22 caliber revolver found in the cab. This is a nine-shot revolver and one shot had been fired. Additionally, the blood chemistry report stated that there was a blood alcohol level of 0.16, which was at the time still considered intoxicated um, because the legal limit was 0.15, which is incredibly high (laughs) to us today. Yes. (laughs) So the newspaper reports about this accident don't mention the weapon or the alcohol, um, but the ballistics and blood reports hadn't been completed yet. So that shouldn't be looked at as a cover-up, which is something that we might find later on. And I do need to say that I didn't find any subsequent reports following up saying, by the way, that crash that Mm. happened a few days ago, the reports say that, you know, a gun was fired at the scene and the victim was also legally drunk. So after Ronald's death, the letter writer continues sending letters to various Circleville businesses, such as this one to the main barbershop um, on September 20th, 1978, which is a year later. Dear public, the superintendent of Westfall High School has been reported for having affairs with school employees. He was greatly involved with bus driver number 10. When her husband found out, he was involved in a freakish fatal accident. So nearly identical letters went to several businesses and then – These were followed up with a handwritten petition for the removal of Massey from his job. In the PDF file that had letters from 1977 and 1978 that we found in various places on the internet, the final one is interesting. It is typed in all caps, 
and has the same strange syntax and things like that. And it is purported to be from Massey himself. It is not signed with his name. It is signed from, it's signed sincerely Westfall schools, superintendent. And it is addressed on the inside of the letter to all residents, comma businesses. And in this letter, this person claiming to be Gordon Massey says, please know that I need no outside help from anyone concerning the school system. I've always done a good job. I will not let your fickled minds interfere. And then says anybody who has information, um, you know, you have to notify the sheriff. It's your duty as a citizen. Very strange letter. So that's sort of the end of one phase of these letters. Yeah. So then in um, February of 1983 and February 7th, Mary Gillespie is driving her school bus and she sees a sign with an obscene message about her daughter, another one of these signs. And so she stops and takes the sign down. I think it was after her afternoon route. She was on her yeah. way back and she saw it. And so she gets this large sign. She brings it onto her bus and notices that attached to the back of the sign, there is a box. And when she opens it up, there is a loaded pistol rigged to go off. And in theory, it would have been a booby trap to go off like in her face. Um, This doesn't happen, (laughs) obviously, because she has the chance to open it up. (laughs) Very poorly constructed booby trap. Yes. And um, it was noted that the box was actually a large wooden chalk box. So that would have been something that was readily available at, at several different places throughout town. And when we come back, we will tell you what happened next. Next time, witchcraft in Whitewater, Wisconsin. It's very alliterative. <laughs> it is. I've started researching it and it's like the perfect topic for us. I am so excited to to put this together and to share this one with you. Um, I think Excellent. we're really going to be able to put our history skills with a Z, of course, to work. You can subscribe <laughs> to Great Lakes Lore at greatlakeslore.com or wherever you find podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Links are in the show notes. And you can also check out our Patreon at chizomedia.com. Depending on what tier you subscribe to, you can find posts about the research that we're doing, blog-like posts that that we update you with. You will also have access to our shows early. So as soon as they're done and through the editing process, you'll get those as opposed to waiting for the day that they come out. And and if you're one of our members of the board of contactees, you'll even get um, a bonus episode every month for, for both shows, um, Great Lakes Lore and The Saucer Life. And after every episode, you'll have a little extra segment where we talk about what we've just recorded and our thoughts on the the process, a little sort of bonus content for every episode, and uh, sometimes, occasionally, video field trips. And we've got one coming out this month where Sam and I go to a whole bunch of bookstores in mid-Michigan and try to figure out what the state of the paranormal book market is is it's not good well the videos the videos fun (laughs) but uh, the state of the paranormal book market not ideal so (laughs) thank you to those who are supporting us there already it's um it's great uh we've been thrilled thrilled um, with with the feedback we're getting um the, the the number of folks who have signed up and enjoy our content um it's just it's been very very encouraging and very exciting so thank you so much 
So also be sure to reach out with your questions and comments about this episode on uh, our social media posts or through email at greatlakeslore at gmail.com or in the comment field on the website. And uh, we'd love to interact with you that way and find out what you're thinking about what you're hearing on our episodes. Yeah. So now we're going to talk a little bit about the books that we're reading for the Astonishing Legends book challenge. So Aaron, what are you reading for February? February, the theme is a book about your favorite Astonishing Legends topic. Well, as I mentioned on our um, last book segment, I have never listened to Astonishing Legends. So um, I looked through... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I looked through uh, a list of their episodes, and I I'm, I'm trying to be efficient. I'm, I'm trying to to kill several birds with with <laughs> as few stones as possible. So I thought that the uh, the book by Terry Lovelace, Incident at Devil's Den, or the Devil's Den Incident, I can't remember what it's called, um, would be a uh, would be a good choice because that could also always be uh, good fodder for an episode of The Saucer Life. So I'm excited to read that. I've heard good things about it. So <laughs> excited to read this book. Sam, what are you reading? I am finally, finally reading The Mothman Prophecies by John Keel. Um, I have owned Yay. this book for several years. I've started a few times and have not, for some reason, gotten through it. I am just a terrible person to commit to reading a book sometimes. <laughs> um, and so I've started it already. And I'm I'm still working through parts the, the beginning that I've already gotten through before. Um, but I, I enjoy it. And I have to say when I when I tweeted that I'm reading it um, the other day, um, Richard Haddam liked my tweet and I was very excited. <laughs> So. Very, it is. It is very exciting. It is, and and Forrest Burgess did too. Um, so I was I was feeling the love from <laughs> from some other Look paranormal folks out there. I'm interested to hear what you think about it. All right, let's get back to the show. So not long after the booby trapped sign is discovered. Mary Gillespie's soon-to-be ex-brother-in-law, Paul Freshour, was arrested and charged with aggravated attempted murder. Now, the Chillicothe, Ohio newspaper, which was the closest sort of larger town, um, that article contained extensive information provided to the paper by Dwight Radcliffe, the longtime sheriff of Pickaway County. So the reason that the police caught Paul Freshour was because even though someone had attempted to file off the serial number from the 25 caliber automatic that was part of this booby trap, the police were able to get that serial number off the gun and it was traced to Paul Freshour. It was his gun. Uh, later, Freshour would claim that the gun had been lost, um, but you know, that's kind of a hard sell, really. But there's some other stuff that Sheriff Radcliffe reveals in this article. He, he claims that there had been a seven-year investigation into the letters ongoing. And, and really, this is the first kind of extensive story about the letters. The way the story is written, um, they're not assuming that the reader has any knowledge of these letters that have been going on since 1977. So, Radcliffe says, we've been looking into these letters, and this is the break in the case we've been looking for. This booby trap connects Fresh Hour to the letters because the sign looked like it was written by the same person who wrote the letters. And they said they have several ideas of motive with regard to Fresh Hour. 
they reveal that threatening letters were sent about a teacher named Vicki Cook who disappeared in 1980 and was later found murdered. Sheriff Radcliffe claims that Freshour admitted to writing 50 of the letters but denied making the signs. He claims that the investigation found no misconduct with Westfall school officials. And Radcliffe also claims that the investigation, quote, was hampered by lack of help from the U.S. Postal Service. There is a lot of information that comes out in this, I think, March 4th, 1983 newspaper article. And it sort of reveals some of the behind the scenes stuff that had been going on about the letters that had been sent out to so many people over the years. So there's a lot of judicial action that takes place immediately after this. Freshour is indicted, and initially he pleads not guilty. Then he changes his plea to not guilty by reason of insanity. And so the the state sends him to get a psychiatric evaluation. After that psychiatric evaluation, he changes lawyers and changes his plea uh, back to just plain old not guilty. So all of this and getting the new lawyers means that you know they get some continuances to have more time to prepare so what ends up happening is that the trial doesn't take place until october of 1983 and the defense fresh hours defense attorney has some uh has some issues uh getting some things uh, getting some things taken care of the defense wants the letters themselves excluded from the evidence at trial since fresh hour wasn't actually being charged with writing threatening letters. The uh, judge said, nah, we'll allow 30 or so because they speak to Fresh Hour's state of mind. There's also some interesting stuff that happens with the handwriting uh, comparison between Fresh Hour and Fresh Hour's handwriting and the handwriting of the letters and signs. And the defense hired a handwriting expert who later was found to have also been working for law enforcement at various times, which created kind of a conflict of interest. There was a shady situation where Fresh Hour was asked by the sheriff's office to basically make not, they didn't ask for a handwriting sample. They sort of asked him to imitate the writing Mm -hmm. of some of the letters that were out there, which is not the same as a handwriting sample. And this story kind of is always the one that gets brought up in stories about this case, that there is this corrupt handwriting sample thing going on. And it does sound weird, doesn't it? I mean, I think it sounds weird. Yeah. I mean, like when you look at the way that the letters are written, since they were written in a way that seems to be like trying to cover up someone's natural handwriting style, it's not horribly difficult <laughs> to replicate. I mean, it's it's basic block lettering. It's not like it's some kind of interesting cursive or you know something like that and so if you're asked to replicate it he replicated it and then they said okay now just write a letter and like they dictated one of the letters and he had to write it out and of course he's already just written the letter in the style so i mean if i were somebody in that situation it'd be like well am i how am i supposed to write this (laughs) you know like yeah yeah, it is very, very strange. And, and there's mm-hmm. other issues that the defense faces. They move for a change of venue because from 
the defense's point of view, these letters have been sent out to various businesses and people for years. Everybody mm-hmm. knows about these letters. Everybody feels kind of threatened and intimidated by these letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, to have the trial there in Pickaway County, it'd be hard to get a jury. And so they move for a change of venue. The judge says, if we can't get a jury together, I'll consider the motion for a change of venue. Well, they were able to impanel a jury. Mm-hmm. And so they're stuck there in town. The trial takes a week. And jury deliberations take just two and a half hours. That's never good. <laughs> no, that's that's or not it's really good. good depending on who you are. <laughs> right. He's found guilty and sentenced to between ten and twenty years. The newspaper says during the trial, handwriting experts testified that they linked the sign and thirty-nine letters introduced in court with handwriting samples contained in Fresh Hour's personnel file mm-hmm. at Anheuser Busch, where Fresh Hour is a quality control supervisor. So despite the concerns about the deeply suspect handwriting sample, from what I've seen reported, they didn't use those samples Fresh Hour mm-hmm. provided as the key evidence. It was comparing it to more natural handwriting mm-hmm. samples. Like control samples almost. Yeah. So he goes off to prison. And while he's in prison, the letters continue. And there are different times where they put him in solitary confinement um, to see, you know, like, well, if we put him here, are these letters going to keep coming? And and they do, <laughs> which, of course, leads a lot of people to believe, well, clearly this could not be fresh hour then because he is in solitary confinement. He's not mailing these letters, but w- we'll talk about that a little more later. The the warden of the prison is is very adamant that yeah, there's no way. Yeah, the guards are like, you know, we'll testify that mm-hmm. you can't be doing it because honestly, to accuse Fresh Hour of, of getting these letters out of prison some way is sort of directly impugning yeah. how the prison is being run. Mm-hmm. And so then Aaron found the appeal that Fresh Hour wrote to the FBI and an appeal for an investigation. He's asking them to investigate Ron Gillespie's murder, so his brother-in-law, claiming that Sheriff Radcliffe covered it up so that it would not interfere with his becoming head of the National Sheriff's Association. Which needs a little (laughs) unpacking. Yes. (laughs) Fresh Hour's argument is basically that if Gillespie had been murdered, which Fresh Hour thought he was. It wasn't just a car wreck. It was a murder. That would, in addition to the scurrilous letters being circulated, would reflect badly on Sheriff Radcliffe's ability to control crime. Uh, Fresh Hour claimed that Pickaway County had a proportional crime rate worse than New York City or Los Angeles. And Sheriff Radcliffe was was desperate to cover this up and not reveal how bad things were between the unsolved murders and or the you know, covered up murders and the letters and things like that. It's a weird sort of paranoid argument. He then goes on to ask the FBI to confirm the letter's claim that Prosecutor Klein got the teacher, Vicki Cook, pregnant and either murdered her or had her murdered. And also that Radcliffe had kept Massey's divorce out of the media because it could confirm the rumors of the affair. So these are issues, you know, that clearly it's a lot of mistrust and accusations about the way that law enforcement is running at that point time. So the next thing that this appeal um, contains is is something that relates to Mary Gillespie. The night that Ron Gillespie had his car accident, Mary, Mary's sister-in-law, Ron's sister, um, Karen, who is Paul Freshour's wife, 
they and two other women were going to Florida. And in, in this appeal, Fresh Hour claims that the women will swear in a court of law that they were told that Gordon Massey would be there. So that Mary Gillespie, you know, part of the reason she was on this trip was, was to go have a tryst in Florida with, with Gordon Massey. And, and again, on that same sort of anti-Mary note, he claims that Mary tampered with that booby trap that she found before turning it over to the police. Now, um, she did, uh, according to some other things that we came across, she had it in her possession for about two hours um, before she turned it over to the police. And they then were like, nope, this is this is a real gun. This is a real booby trap. Um, and and they disarmed <laughs> it. Um, but but he, of course, is is claiming that you know, she, she messed it up. She tampered with it. She could have done anything she wanted to it then. And so it's, you know, not, not, not a good piece of evidence. Um, this, um, document also has a lot of bitterness towards his ex-wife and, um, he claimed that Mary or he, he claimed that his ex-wife told Mary that he had written the letters. So, so that, his ex-wife was was sort of the one who was pushing this idea that that he was responsible for all of that. So in addition to Fresh Hour's sort of narrative of what really happened and why he's not guilty, there's other supplementary evidence and materials that are intended to support his claims. A testimony from the trial with Fresh Hour's annotations explaining what he thinks they really meant by things. And also a letter from journalist and investigator Martin Yant to the parole board in which he described Fresh Hour's ex-wife saying, in my 22 years as a journalist and investigator, I don't think I have ever met an individual so consumed with such irrational hatred for another and a willingness to say anything, no matter how provably false, to defame him. So again, lots of animosity directed at the ex-wife, directed at Mary in these documents. Now, Fresh Hour would go on to, or somebody working on his behalf, would go on to present his side of the story in various ways throughout the years. Um, the document that that we just talked about um, and other things I found on a website, circlevilleletters.wordpress.com. It is a very basic, unedited WordPress sort of default shell with a couple PDFs and a couple of Microsoft Word documents hosted on it with no explanation. And when I clicked on the about tab, it still has the like, you can put your text here and explain. <laughs> <laughs> for, for, you know, a site that that is intending to prove a man's innocence, it's very low effort. <laughs> yes. you know, you, you'd think you'd like put a picture of him there or something. So <laughs> there's like a number of files. Uh, the first file is an introduction uh, signed by Fresh Hour claiming that these files contain the truth. You know, you might have heard about these letters on the internet, but don't believe everything you read. This is what's real. Reiterates claims that there's a cover-up by law enforcement officials in the county. There's another file imaginatively titled circleville-letters-2.doc in which Fresh Hour or his surrogate, it's written in the third person, presents nine pages about a number of topics, including the suspect handwriting sample, accusations that his attorney, Vincent DePascal, was, quote, working with the prosecution, which is a pretty serious claim. Mm-hmm. 
claims that there was never full discovery of the letters because Prosecutor Klein, quote, had a teacher murdered, another reference to the Vicki Cook murder. The document complains that Fresh Hour's lawyers weren't able to examine the booby trap evidence before the trial, veers into all the interpersonal relationships involved, collusion between Mary and his ex-wife. It's a very repetitive document. It restates a lot of things from the earlier document that Sam discussed. And all of this was a consequence of Sheriff Radcliffe and Prosecutor Klein's desire to keep the letters out of the public eye, lest they suffer consequences for things they'd done or failed to do, which is weird because Freshour wants it both ways. He (laughs) says – you know, they're trying to cover up the letters and they don't want the letters out in the public. And then when some of the letters are allowed as evidence in court, he's like, no, they can't look at the letters because that prejudices everybody against me. So now we're going to jump to talking about the way that the later media has covered um, the story because it's shown up in different crime shows, podcasts, different things. And so one of the earliest ones that we're going to talk about is a story by Martin Yant, who we've mentioned already. And he wrote an article for the Ohio Observer in 1994. And now if you recall, when we mentioned Yant earlier, he had written a letter in support of Fresh Hour. So that's that's clearly the angle that he's working. Um, but the story was clearly written for shock value. Um, the, it's three pages long. And the first page, everything is in all caps. There are weird colons and periods in different places. And he's trying to copy the same weird sort of punctuation syntax, whatever, of the letters to try and demonstrate like, these were the weird letters and they were all written like this. Could you imagine receiving them? And so a lot of time is spent introducing the, the, this and the letters. Um, and it could have been spent sort of telling the story, in my opinion. And it doesn't start with the letters to Massey or the school board, but dives right into the letter that was written to Mary Gillespie. And in different points, it mentions, throws in some odd facts about Fresh Hour, such as his pay. Um, he was working <laughs> at the Anheuser-Busch, um, and he was making, I believe it said $55,000 a year, which is Dang. an incredible salary for the 1970s. Like, that's a fine salary now. They also mentioned that he has a master's degree. So he's c- clearly trying to use odd facts like a salary, (laughs) Um, but his master's degree to kind of build credibility and not just make him seem like an average inmate or something. (laughs) He also says that Pickaway County officials wouldn't discuss the case because in 1994, there was an ongoing FBI investigation. So he wasn't able to get anything from the county officials. He notes that in 1991, an investigation had begun because the letters continued while Fresh Hour was in jail. And he was submitted to a polygraph and passed and a handwriting expert said that the writing examples didn't match. Now, at this point, of course, he's seen many of these letters. So I guess if you were being sat down and said, hey, write something for us, which is kind of how they made it seem like it was, mm-hmm. um, it, it would be easy to write in a way that wasn't like that, <laughs> if that's what yeah. you were trying to do. He mentions also a series of letters that came about in the early 90s. Um, in 1992, there was a letter that went to, well, there was a series of three letters that went to the Grove City Police Chief. The writer identified herself as a teacher named Mary, and they bring up the issue of Vicki Cook's murder and says that she was murdered by the same person who murdered Ronald Gillespie. Um, The second of the series mentions several booby traps that were in the school, just like 
multiple booby traps hanging out in the school, <laughs> and that a teacher was killed for knowing too much. And then in the third letter, a Pickaway County official was accused of murdering Cook. Yance explains some of the differences in the writing styles of these three letters, but then speculates that they could all still be from the same person, but just made to look differently. There was one that was like written, I think, in all lowercase or something like that. So he mentions that they were written differently, but clearly the series he felt kind of seemed to flow together. The one thing that Yant does mention, which is pretty damning to to the police department there, is is this ignored police report of a sandy-haired man in an El Camino who was seen in the area where the sign and booby trap were placed that Mary Gillespie found. Fresh Hour has dark hair, not not sandy-haired, and did not own an El Camino. And so it was a bus driver who had claimed to see this before Mary had passed away. And this gentleman appeared to be urinating, (laughs) standing behind his car, kind of peeing there. So she didn't see his face, and he didn't appear to be putting the sign out, but it's still odd, seen in the same vicinity. And, you know, he claims that this was never followed up on. And um, he goes on to say that after mentioning this fact in a Columbus Alive article, he was threatened by a reader. So this article is very pro-Fresh Hour, and it's a bit hard to follow in in a few different points, but the whole story is really hard to follow. So I'm not really putting too much blame on on Gant for that one. One of the sort of hooks of Yant's article was based on the fact that Unsolved Mysteries, which you all might recall as one of the greatest television shows ever created, was thinking about doing a story about the Circleville letters and and Paul Freshour's case. And Unsolved Mysteries had received threats to stay away from the story. And so this is sort of worked into some of Yant's articles. And so actually, Unsolved Mysteries did take a look at the uh, story in 1994 and we watched that uh, mm-hmm. a while ago it's up on uh, it's up on YouTube uh, we'll probably throw a throw a link in the show notes to it it seemed very pro fresh hour it echoed some of the things very strongly that Yance article did particularly the sandy-haired person in the El Camino uh, being a, a mm-hmm. person of interest that the police did not uh, did not follow up on any thoughts about the unsolved mysteries? Segment. I think we just need to mention that in the letter that was sent to Unsolved Mysteries, the writer calls them El Sickos. El Sickos. <laughs> yes. We, uh, we, thank you for, for reminding me of that. Yeah. You El Sickos, which, which is just, I I don't know. It, I don't know. Did we talk like that in 1994? I, I probably called somebody an El Sicko at some point in 1994. It's just sort of what we did. Um, back then, wore flannel, listened to Nirvana, called people El Sicko. <laughs> so in 2021, um, 48 Hours did an episode on this case. And there was a, a brief introduction that really plays up the small town charm of Circleville. Then it um, segues to a podcaster who was investigating the story. Um, that was Marie Mayhew. And we'll get to her podcast um, after we talk about this episode. But she's kind of a through line that runs through it. So they were clearly basing a lot of their episode on the podcast series that she did on on this piece. It was less, I, 
less friendly to Fresh Hour. Yes. It was um, a little more balanced than Unsolved Mysteries mm-hmm. had been. There's yeah. a lot of shots of, of ominous mailboxes. Yeah, that was great. Moody mailboxes. Doesn't really go into some of Fresh Hour's claims. It doesn't go into Prosecutor Klein impregnating and, you know, offing a young teacher, mm-hmm. probably because of libel laws. Yeah. They... They imply that the FBI never got interested in the case, which is not true necessarily, but they did bring in a former FBI profiler who thought the writer was possibly a woman. And when we were talking about some of those early letters, especially that very first one that went to Gordon Massey, it does – there are a few things. Of course, they say like, you know, you're after my girlfriend, whatever. But there are a few lines in there that are kind of weird. Like it refers to, you know, stay away from my girls and things like that, that almost feels like it could be like a matronly (laughs) bus driver who's trying to perfect or perfect, trying to protect the younger ladies, you know, and her flock or something like that. Yeah. And so I don't know if she was focusing on that specifically, but there, there were a few of those little things that it's like, well, that's a weird choice to make. But then again, all the letters have weird word choices. So <laughs> yeah, the odd vocabulary choices just obscure a lot mm-hmm. of stuff. Mm-hmm. They bring in a handwriting expert. Um, who the best part of the episode. <laughs> it was really good. She, she sounded authoritative. Yes. Believe anything this woman told me. So she examined Fresh Hour's handwriting and the letters, and she pointed out some things, particularly the, um, was it the way he made his G's? Yes, they looked like a six. Which apparently is exceedingly rare. I started thinking, like, how do I make a G? And I was like, yep, nothing like that. The capital G. Like, it looks, and they did, they look just like a six, whereas, you know, I kind of make the C and then make the little line thing. I'm using finger motions that you can't see, but (laughs) I don't make a six. (laughs) And the Y's, weren't those weird? Like a U with the straight down line from like the middle bottom. But she was looking at these very specific like pieces, these little tells and, you know, like matching them up in a way that seemed they seemed far more objective. So she was convinced that Fresh Hour was behind it. Mm-hmm. But they interviewed some people who who knew Fresh Hour, family members and, and family friends who who just just literally cannot wrap their minds around the idea that he might have been guilty of this. But isn't that always the way it is? Yeah. I mean, the the one woman they kept interviewing, I think, was his niece. And um she I mean she was in tears that, you know, that's that's not him. And and she was also very anti her aunt (laughs) um Karen Sue, you know, saying that, you know, she really put him through a lot and she was the evil one of the story. And so speaking of the, the, the role that Karen Sue, the ex-wife, played in all this, there were, there were those in, in the Unsolved Mysteries report and, and other reports that claimed that the sandy-haired man with the El Camino, who was seen urinating by the sign <laughs> and that police didn't check out, that that might have been Karen Sue's boyfriend at the mm-hmm. time. So I don't want to call this a theory, but this is just the way my brain is connecting things. You've got the ex-wife who has been on Fresh Hour's case the whole time, who was telling Mary Gillespie that that he was the one who was writing these horrible letters to her and, and tormenting her. And then, you know, who is it that's, that's setting up the booby trap? Well, it's her boyfriend. So mm-hmm. it seems like a way to sort of 
maneuver everything to be that fresh hour is the focus of all this, that, that everything that goes on is kind of a giant plot to get Paul fresh hour. And if you read the documents that he wrote or that were on that website, it is very much sort of a persecution complex. Mm -hmm. He's the one who knows the truth about how corrupt everything is and that they won't solve Ron's murder. They won't even admit it's a murder. And because of that, they're trying to get him. Yes. So then the final piece of media coverage, if you will, that we are going to talk about is the series of the Whatever Remains podcast by Marie Mayhew. And so she did this eight episode deep dive into the case. Um, Each episode is between 20 and 40 minutes long. So um, little digestible pieces that she's broken up. So if you want to listen to some other background type things, um, I'd, I'd recommend checking that out. And she gets the history right, which is something we haven't seen in these other ones. She includes a lot of background information. So she even starts off with the letters that were arriving to Massey and the school board. She talks about, I know, right? (laughs) It's just ignored in every other thing. (laughs) Right. And she includes information about Massey's marriage, um, which was not healthy at all. Um, He Mm. was very, it sounds... Um, emotionally, psychologically, and even potentially physically abusive to his wife and his son, who was um, roughly just graduating from high school, I think, um, was witness to all of that. So there are claims that perhaps Massey's son was the letter writer. And um, and so she she goes into some of that um, there. And one thing that she mentions that I found really interesting is this episode um, where she talks about Paul Freshhauer's work in a local prison. So about 10 years before um, before this happened, he was working at the Ohio State Penitentiary as a guard. And um, there was a riot and he was one of nine uh, guards who were taken hostage. So there's a long story. She goes into a lot of the background with differences and there was a warden and then there was a new warden and they had different styles and just some of the the bad things about the Ohio State Penitentiary it was built in the 1830s but still you know still was the one being used <laughs> in the 1970s which is just mind-blowing if you think about a 19th century prison <laughs> it, it was it was overflowing too she said it was built for like to hold like 1800 men and there were almost 2200 men in there or something i think so just horrible conditions for for the prisoners and of course then they couldn't hire enough guards um, to to work there and so massey or i'm sorry fresh hour comes on um during the sort of push to hire a bunch more guards. Anyway, so these guards are taken um, taken hostage. And several of them, you know, have stories, obviously, about what happened to them. But fresh hours were a little weird. Um, he mentioned <laughs> some things that, that the others do not. He says at one point that one of the inmates came by and played a guitar and um, about sort of how sad prison life was and made other inmates cry. <laughs> and, and, and during this, you know, it sounds like from many reports that, you know, some of the prisoners were very threatening to, to these guards, whereas other ones were like, no, we're not going to hurt them. Our point here is to like reveal how horrible the situation is. And there were also some rumors, however, that the guards provided the weapons and and drugs, which you'll find out (laughs) in a second, um, to the prisoners to sort of incite the riot because they didn't like the new warden. But that's something we don't need to get into here. But um, Fresh Hour also claims that that they had to witness these 
the drug-fueled orgies that the inmates were having, like, right in front of them. Um, so, so that's bizarre. <laughs> Sounds again, like a hostile work environment situation. <laughs> yes. I don't know. And, and again, she says that, you know, he's the only one who mentions sort of these really weird oddball things. And so you have to think, you know, what kind of effect this could have on a person, you know, being involved in something like this. Um, she does mention that other than one other guard, Fresh Hour is the one who does the most interviews afterwards, talks about it the most publicly. So there is a little bit of this sort of want to be, you know, kind of in 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 the limelight about it yeah. and, and share. Um, and if these you know, he's making up these stories. I don't know that he is, but if he is, then that's, again, just trying to get attention. And and it's also interesting, I think, that, you know, sort of how that can play into then this perception that he has about mistrusting law enforcement, right? Um, because there were issues at the prison, issues with these guards, issues with the wardens, you know, whatever it might be. It could have been a lot of different things, but clearly there's, there's an issue there <laughs> with law enforcement. Yes. And so he comes out about a year after Ron Gillespie's accident with with a sort of 10-year reunion. That's not the, commemorative, I guess. Retrospective. Ret- that's yeah. better. Retrospective um, of, <laughs> of the riot. And so this kind of fuels some of the fire that he's, you know, issues he's already having with Sheriff Radcliffe and being very accusatory, like, you know, why aren't you looking into this more? My brother-in-law was murdered. You're not doing enough. I should be involved. I should be helping you because you're not doing anything. Um, and so, so there's a lot, a lot of that. And and so Mayhew also goes into um, some some discussion be- about Fresh Hour's relationship with his wife Karen Sue. And throughout it, I was just she doesn't really seem to be working an angle. Um, so I really appreciated that. Um, and she even tries to sort of explain away a lot of these accusations that Ron Gillespie was murdered. And she says, you know, he'd been stressed out. His wife was gone. He was just home for the evening. He'd probably had a couple beers and got upset when he received this phone call. Went out and got into a drunk driving accident. He wasn't injected with alcohol after the fact, which is something everybody was saying, no, Ron doesn't drink. Ron doesn't drink. He couldn't have, he couldn't have been drunk. Um, and she's like, ah, why couldn't he have, <laughs> you know, right. like you don't need to go, go that conspiracy. And, and the other thing that she does is she kind of divides up looking at these letters in different sections. So she looks at like the first batch of letters that, you know, dealt heavily with the Massey, Gillespie affair. Um, And then after Ron's death, there's kind of a pause in that. And then there's sort of an influx of letters um, a bit after that that start, you know, accusing Radcliffe of, um, you know, misconduct and trying to cover things up and really sort of poking at law enforcement in general. And so, um, you know, really just makes you wonder if there are a couple couple different things going on throughout all of this. (laughs) The, the focus on on law enforcement and I think bringing in the Cook murder, the, the teacher's murder mm, in mm-hmm. 1980 and, yeah. and the fact that the letters sort of kind of mocked law enforcement for not solving that or accused the prosecutor who was later a judge, that Klein mm-hmm. guy, of of you know committing the murder or <laughs> having, having the woman murdered. Sort of a, a real antipathy mm-hmm. for law enforcement. And, you know, sometimes, I'm not saying anything, but sometimes in, in smaller towns, the entrenched political establishment can can play a little fast and loose with things sometimes mm-hmm. and sort of leave itself opens to act open to accusations mm-hmm. of abuses of power. And the you know, Sheriff Radcliffe, he was the longest serving sheriff in the United States <laughs> at one point. Um, his father 
became sheriff in 1931. His son would become sheriff, except for a few years. The Radcliffs controlled the sheriff's office from 1931 to 2000. <laughs> Three generations. That is, you're going to get people who are angry yeah. and people who point to that kind of longevity as something that that clearly indicates corruption. And it's one thing that doesn't matter when everything's cool, right? But then when something right. like this comes up, that's when everything starts bubbling up to the top. And I just have like this image in my head, like when, you know, they, they arrest Ron Fresh or not Ron Fresh Hour, they arrest Paul Fresh Hour. And he's like, well, I guess we should test out this handwriting. Um, how do they do this? <laughs> you know, like it's something that he's from a small town. He's never had to deal with something like that before. So he's like, hey, can you copy this letter? Um, yeah. Just because he doesn't, didn't have the, the, the training, the experience to know how to deal with something like that potentially. I was thinking the same thing, and I, I don't mean to, to say it like I don't mean to minimize the the miscarriage. Oh yeah, of so bad procedure. <laughs> it's horrible, but it's not like hey, 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 we're gonna get him. Right. It's just like oh, we should probably figure out if he has matching handwriting. So try to do this, right. and we'll see if if you do it right. You know, yeah, it, it's yeah, it, it's more of a more of a small town incompetence issue yeah. maybe there wasn't than, uh, enough law and order on tv back then to know how to there, handle something like there that. really wasn't and you know <laughs> as much as i love quincy that's not getting the job done <laughs> as far as stuff like this goes uh boy that makes me sound older than i even am <laughs> so there's a lot to wrap up here <laughs> yes the the first point that i guess we want to make is that people are still trying to figure this out. I mean, obviously the 48 hours thing was j just came out in 2021, but the internet is filled with forums that are filled with theories, uh, more questions that people have people copying old newspaper articles, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, and in some, and in these message boards, there's no consensus. Some people are certain it was Paul. Others are certain it wasn't him. Some are pointing their figures at Mary and Karen Sue. They seem to be favorite other targets. Uh, other other folks are just postulating that there were many different letter writers, that there is a lot mm -hmm. going on here. And it's foolish to look at all of this as like one one whole yeah. thing. <laughs> um, that, I do not necessarily disagree no, with that. <laughs> I, I tend to be in that sort of camp. Yeah. Yes. So... I, there, there was one that we were pointed, one message board in particular that we were pointed to by a listener on Instagram, um, and it's at sitcomsonline.com. And so there's like an Unsolved Mysteries tab, and then you can find like the Circleville. Well-known sitcom, there's, there's Unsolved a, Mysteries. <laughs> I know. I thought that was weird. <laughs> I was like, wait, is this real? Am I like just, you know, putting the break in these letters in the wrong spot or something? <laughs> um but I mean, it was, I mean, it's just, you just keep scrolling and it's just more and more and more ideas, theories, questions, people repeating themselves. I mean, up until the, the one thread that I was looking at, the last entry was made in 2016. So people still looking and trying to figure this out. And there was one I just thought I would throw in here as sort of a a way off the deep end theory that these people <laughs> like to, to put out there. It says, personally, I think the sister-in-law is the culprit. My theory is this. Sister-in-law found out about the affair somehow. Perhaps she and the bus driver were cordial, but not friendly. She's PO'd because her brother was getting cuckolded. <laughs> she sent letters threatening her. The sheriff, I think, was involved with the sister-in-law somehow, perhaps even romantically, and helped her with the plan. Perhaps the husband... <laughs> perhaps the husband knew about the sister-in-law and sheriff. She was his sister, after all. When the sheriff called the husband, that was who he was out to confront that night. <laughs> 
and he was killed to conceal the identity of the sheriff and or his sister. Killing a sibling to play cover your ass is extreme, but it has been done. I can't even that, follow that's, that. <laughs> that's insane. It's like it's like Mad Lips. It's like <laughs> just like inserting letters or take a character from the story and put it in the <laughs> blank. So, but this leads to the question of why do we love true crime so much? Um, so I found an article from Psychology Today that lists main four reasons or four main reasons, and I've been talking a long time. <laughs> And I think that Aaron and I kind of agreed that these four cover most of the bases. Um, The first is that we like our fight or flight response being engaged for reasons that aren't threatening to us. I like scary movies. This morning I watched Annabelle Creation. I was glad I wasn't really being hunted by a demon doll. So, yeah. Um, Two, it engages our mind like a puzzle. I'm going to let Aaron talk about this one for a second. It's it's like it's like Wordle, <laughs> but with death. Um, that reference will age poorly, I'm pretty sure. It will. We get into these things, and we like to figure it out. And it's it's this way with, with crimes. It's this way with conspiracy theories. It's this way with true crimes like this that allege conspiracies. And I <sighs> went down this – I went down the Paul Freshour rabbit hole. I – I was, I was crazy conspiracy guy. And I was like, well, you know what? I, you know, look, the, the prosecutor had somebody murdered. And here's the thing about puzzles and conspiracy theories. Puzzles and conspiracy, conspiracy theories are engaging because everything fits. If you're, if you're doing a jigsaw <laughs> puzzle, every piece will fit. You know, unless mm-hmm. you bought it used and it's missing pieces, but every piece is going to fit. And what makes conspiracy theories both um, enticing and unrealistic is that there are no gaps in a conspiracy theory. Everything <laughs> is accounted for. Everything connects. And our mind likes putting those connections together. And so when we do, we can get so tied up with, with making these connections work that we forget that in the real world, a lot of times there are holes, there are gaps in our knowledge. There are things that we can never know about people's motivations or about what happened, but we get kind of addicted. I don't know if it's like a dopamine hit in our brain or something to to (laughs) plugging datum A into factoid B, and we put them together and we get the ex-wife's boyfriend urinating by a sign, and we've figured <laughs> it all out. But it's it's addictive, yeah. and it, it can drag you down. Yeah, so the third um, reason is that we are engaging in predator-prey play. Um, which which we enjoy sort of on a biological level. Obviously, there's no threat here, but we can imagine, you know, being in the situation and what would we do and, and how would we outrun or how would we figure this out or whatever. And so it's engaging sort of that primal piece of our brain. Um, and then finally, we're fascinated by our own dark sides. And, you know, I think I think that is very true as someone who likes sort of horror, true crime, that kind of stuff. You know, what is it that that makes these people tick? What is it that could cause somebody to write these kind of horrible letters. Um, And if we figure out who it is, then we'll figure out why. And one of the reasons I love history is because I like sort of studying the human condition, if you will. Like I like stories of people and what motivates them and the ideas that they have. And sort of true crime is like studying that at their worst. (laughs) Um, 
And so you're combining a couple of these different things together. Um, yeah. And and so, yeah. yeah, I mean, this this case sort of has just about all of these things. I don't know if it's really we've really got much fight or flight going on. It's letters in the mailbox. So it's not <laughs> horribly, horribly frightening unless unless you found the booby trap. Um, but otherwise, right. I think I think this case ticks all the other three boxes here. So another question we had as we worked on this is why weren't the feds involved to a greater degree earlier than they seem to have been, especially since it dealt with the mail? Now, Sheriff Radcliffe in 1983 claimed that the Postal Service wasn't being cooperative and that had, quote, hampered the investigation. But that seems weird to me because there's a whole branch and Sam went into sort of a deep dive into this agency. There's a whole branch of the Postal Service, the United States Postal Inspection Services, that is dedicated to watching out for and protecting against threatening mail with explosives and hazardous material and threats against government officials, religious organizations, targeted individuals or groups. And one thing that came out in the news reports about the Circleville letters is that some of them that had been sent to some agencies in Pickaway County contained arsenic. So clearly this has to do with stuff that the U.S. Postal Inspection Service would be dealing with. Don't you think, Sam? I mean, it sounds like it to me. I do. That's why I looked it up. <laughs> yes. You, you had an inkling that maybe threatening people through the mail is something the post office might look into. Even if there um, wasn't arsenic, it still seems like something, I mean, with the number of letters and the types of threats that were involved with those letters and like hinting at like sexual conduct between Massey and a minor, like all of these things read something that should have been investigated yes. earlier on at a much larger scale. Yeah. And, you know, there's accusations that Sheriff Radcliffe did not, was not very proactive in seeking the help of the FBI um, or the state police uh, kind of wanted it to be handled locally. And people like Fresh Hour would claim that's because there was a giant cover-up involved. Mm -hmm. They didn't want the content of the letters to uh, reflect poorly on law enforcement in the county. But I don't know. It just all seems very strange. I also enjoyed that this the USPIS was formed in 1775. So it's basically like as soon as we have a U.S. Postal Service – we're going to create this thing that investigates this. So it's not like it was new. <laughs> right. Um, and, and like, so, and it also, I think just says like, this is a way that people could use to hurt people. So we need to make sure that we have a department that's going to look into that and make sure that it's, that it doesn't happen. Samantha, where does this leave us? Um, we've got this huge sprawling, <laughs> disturbing story. We've tried to cover it to the best of our ability. <laughs> In our I'm own limited way. Yeah. Um, where does this leave us? I mean, our goal was never to figure this out. No. Never no. to solve this, to prove Fresh Hour's innocence or guilt or anybody else's. Um, but I think it's an interesting look into sort of human character in a way, um, but also in the way that sources and the sources that you use dictate 
the story that you end up with. So maybe we'll talk about that first. And then I have, there's, there's sort of this idea that I've been annoying Aaron with for the last couple of weeks about this, (laughs) that I'll talk about at the very end, because it's not really like an academic (laughs) discussion whatsoever. Um, But as you could see from some of the different um, things that we looked at, whether it be newspapers from the time, Yance article, Unsolved Mysteries, 48 Hours, Marie Mayhew's podcast, these different things, they all give different pieces of the puzzle and they all lead you to believe very different things. If all you did was watch Unsolved Mysteries, you'd be like, oh, poor Paul Freshour. The poor man spent all these years in prison. He didn't do that. He was framed or poor trial or, you know, whatever it was. But, you know, you need to put all the other pieces in place in order to get the complete picture. Yeah. And I think one of the things that sort of skews the perspective is that as far as the volume of evidence out there, Fresh Hour and or his surrogates have put a lot of information out there on the internet in these files that present his particular point of view. And so, you know, when I was reading those, you sort of get sucked into, mm. you know, well, there's a lot of words here. There must be something going on, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's it really does highlight the fact that every source has a creator and that creator mm-hmm. has a particular biased viewpoint and lens through which they're looking at the whole thing, whether it's the local news reporters or the law enforcement or the person convicted of the crime who claims they were innocent or that person's niece who can't fathom the notion that Mm -hmm. her uncle Paul was behind this. Everybody's got this viewpoint. And even though it feels different when you're dealing with people who might still be alive and and talking to you on a TV show or a, or a podcast interview, um, it feels different than when you're looking at, I don't know, documents about the creation of the Postal Inspection Service in <laughs> 1775, but but the skills and, and the viewpoint and the kind of um, care we have to exercise um, when sort of studying sources, it's the same. It's the same sort of historic, same sort of critical thinking skill that we use as historians. Yeah. Um, I, I agree completely. <laughs> so tell everybody what you've been annoying me with. So I. I have this idea. I mean, obviously, like, this is sort of the true crime story and people are interested in it because of sort of the things that we talked about already. But I think this one hits almost a little different because it could happen to anybody. I mean, it happened in a very different way today. But um, we all have things that we don't want people to know about us, um, whether it's people close to us or your coworkers or your community at large, whatever it is. We all have things that we don't want people to know. And so to have somebody find out the secret, imply that they're watching you, send these threatening letters, then send them to other people in the community, get your secret out there, um, that's really terrifying. Um, sort of to have your life on on show for everybody. And of course, today we share so much more virtually through social media and things that, you know, that we don't have quite as much privacy as people did back then. But there are still things that I don't want people knowing about me or whatever. And um, and so I think it sort of it it hits, at least for me, and I would think. Other people, you know, anybody could be living in the small town and and anybody could receive some kind of 
threatening correspondence that, you know, I know this terrible secret about you. And if, you know, you don't tell it, then we'll steal your dog or, you know, something yeah. like that. Um, you know, it's like, yeah. well, or what, kill what, your child. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, what, what would I do? It's a hard one. It's a, it's, it, it, yeah. I don't know. It hits different. I think. It does. It's it's not like a kidnapping or a murder or, or something like that. This is something that is that is more domestic, more mm-hmm. inside the home and inside your 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 personal and and, and private life. And it, it is it is very very troubling. But a long, like drawn out torture. You know, it's not yeah. just like a not that anybody wants to be murdered, but it's not just like a quick murder or something like that. It's right. it's this. You know, did. Um, you know, ruins your credibility. It speaks right. to your character, your morality, all of these different things. Um, Absolutely, it's I. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think you've got a really good point there, and I think that's probably a good place to leave it because I don't think we're going to get any closer to the answer today. No, let's let everybody ruminate on their own deep dark secrets that they don't want anybody yes. else to find out. <laughs> Absolutely, and if you have any secrets you'd like to share with us, you can write to us at PO Box sixty eight. <laughs> Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. It has to be snail mail or it won't count. Snail mail. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, so share your town's secrets with us, but not our secrets. No. Um, our, our secrets are boring. All right. Thanks for listening. The Circleville Letters was written and produced by Aaron Gullius and Samantha Engel. Our music is by Raphael Crux. Great Lakes Lore is a Chizo Media production. Chizo Media. Our heart is with the people. Until next time, don't get lost in the lore.